like the American dream, right? It's like you, you spend your life working for your retirement. Golly, what a lot of shit, man. I would tell young Lori to slow down and allow the season to do its work. Don't say healthy, don't say happy. Don't say well, and don't say normal. You show me one person on the planet who's healthy, happy, normal, and well. Who is that person? Is there something good that can be gained quickly? I don't know. Welcome back to the Ansons Podcast, where I am particularly afraid this week. So, Sam's afraid because we're talking about Latin prepositions, which is true in a way. Uh, yeah, that's a scary topic. On the odd occasion where somebody asks me about Latin or other classical or ancient languages. Wait, just, just give me a pause. How often does that actually happen? I Maybe once a month. In your whole life. Really? Once yeah. a month? Once a month someone goes, how much do you actually know? What's helpful to know? As soon as somebody says, we're going to pay your salary for this year without you having to do any work, I'll go study ancient languages full-time. Mm. But just, No one's ever asked me any questions about Latin. So I think there's a small difference of having studied Latin or not, mm. <laughs> which I have not done Feels very unrelated. much of yeah. at all. Yeah. All right. Jesse, if you're listening. But everybody should know Latin prop- prepositions. Propositions, too. Pro- proper prepositions. A preposition, a spatio-temporal thing. Where are you in space or time? And or in relationship with another thing, you know, in, out, under, because, before, after. So uh, preposition in Latin, there's not that many, but what, what they're good at doing is situating you in relationship to a thing, and, you know, they're pro, ex, ad, inter, post, in, ob, and they come up all over the place. Adventure is a preposition before, uh, or when it's sort of, you know, it's the coming to, it ends up meaning about to happen or obstacle, ob, a preposition meaning against most of the time. Uh, and then so stand against. But this gets really interesting when we talk about the preposition pro, as in professional, or in the case of today, profanity, pro fanum outside or actually technically before the temple. I was explaining this to Emily last night and she said, you keep making these pauses that make me feel like I'm supposed to have understood what you're talking about. (laughs) So maybe when you do this tomorrow, you can just get rid of the pauses. (laughs) But one of them I was saying, isn't that interesting? Profanum, out before the temple, log long pause, and she goes, what does, what that does mean? it mean? And I go, we could spend, I kid you not, the entire podcast talking about this outside of the sacred, and then my wife raised the objection that the phantom isn't actually, doesn't actually coincide with the biblical concept of sacred, and also God doesn't define himself as sacred, he defines himself as holy, which are categorically distinct things, but we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about swearing as a case study in right action or evaluating action. I mean, you weren't as excited as I've ever seen you when I said we should talk about profanity on an episode. Well, 
Right. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that our friends that are listening, which are the people that listen, all several thousand of you, um, have bought in to some of the, the heart and the posture and the way of living and the intentionality so that you continued listening even when we put a swear word in our intro. And so that we're going to talk about swearing. I, I feel like we're in a s- uh, safe context um, for the most part. Yeah. And also... For the most part. And also, I don't want... The, you, as you mentioned beforehand, like we're not going to do a series on the official and son's posture on... Drinking, dancing, smoking, chewing, swearing. And, and swearing. Like that's just not... Obviously, so much of what is our true north here is guided by the heart, is guided by knowing things by their fruit. And so, yes, as you were like, we're going to talk about swearing. I was like, "Ah, uh, can we not just poke everybody in the eye? So it sits inside a whole realm of topics that, depending on a person's background, are incendiary or not. Like, when people say, is it wrong to swear? There's sort of a, is it wrong to get a tattoo? Is it wrong for a woman to lead? Is it wrong to say, oh my God, is it wrong to hit someone who's hitting you? Is it? Can you give us more examples of words that people are going to think are bad? <laughs> wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Like, yeah, there's right. this realm of things that sort of better than addressing any one topic because you're just saying, it's really interesting to dive in to how do you evaluate a right action? What are the coordinates? inside of which you triangulate your position? And then how do you make good decisions about things you decide to do or not do? This so, is a big pause where we're all supposed to know what he's talking about. This is, <laughs> as soon as we mentioned triangulation, well, we're going to actually start by triangulating within three core concepts inside of which wait, Jesus wait. defines human failure. I want to, uh, can we back up a second before yeah. you go down that? Um, I do want to touch a little bit more on what you're saying here in this. What you bring to the table actually is going to inform a lot of what you experience as being vulgar, profane, wrong, swearing. And um, I remember we're sitting in a, a church service, but we're like, we're, we're at a particular place in time. And depending on your culture, depending on your your upbringing, some things are going to be extremely offensive. And if you go to different countries, those things may not be nearly as offensive. Um, other hand gestures may be uh, may get you into a fight. What I particularly enjoy is that the Vulgate and its connection to the word vulgar and actually this progression right. of words that are base actually were just words that were common and were this way of distinguishing people who were proper versus people who were lower class. And you get these interesting, there's like this, you go down so many different rabbit trails Are we taking this here. rabbit trail right now? Well, we're, I, we're I think, doing it. No, I mean, okay, well, if we're going to fully do it, there, there is part of me that's like, you can't separate where these things came from and why you use them um, from the things that they are. And so, yeah, I love where we're going to go with it because you're going to guide us into heart, but I also want to be like... <laughs> Have you have you just paused and looked around and wondered like why some of the things are offensive to you? Like some I don't know. Maybe this is too rabbit holy. Maybe this is where we need to start. It's interesting because profanity sits inside a body of concepts where it's easy to incline towards a kind of agnosticism where you go, what does that word mean? Who said it's bad? Why is that 
occupation or lifestyle bad. Who said? And on the one hand, the Bible is great and actually can clearly describe types of action that are destructive to human beings. And when people say, is X action even a sin? That's my favorite way of framing it because most people bring a judicial concept of sin that's actually Greek to the table when they talk about, is this action wrong? And the Greek concept has to do with morality, um, moral rightness and wrongness, or actually an even better way of moral uprightness and moral lowliness. The problem is that sin as concept does not actually relate to the right or wrong thing to do. It actually describes actions that are destructive to human beings. And so how different would the conversation be if someone said, hey, does dancing actively destroy the substance that is a human soul? Because that's really what you're asking when you come and say sinful or wrong, probably. Returning to language for a minute, I love this one because when you go, where did these things come from? Why did they end up? How do we find our way in what seem to be arbitrary social structures when it comes to right and wrong and go, they come from somewhere. It's worth knowing about. They didn't just magically appear. The connection between vulgar and the Vulgate actually makes me use vulgar even more because the Vulgate is not a very good. It's, you know, it's Latin translation of the Bible. It's more like a Latin paraphrase of the Bible. Uh, and it makes me think of more things than that as vulgar. That podcast is vulgar. <laughs> it's kind of a paraphrase that's not totally accurate. Yeah. That the youth group is vulgar. I think that it's a natural human tendency to want to have that list of things that are right and wrong and then to actually erect the wall like 30 feet back so you don't even get close to them, right? Like that's what the Old Testament and the laws smack to me of. Like there's the core heart of do not break these because you will be breaking these covenants with me. You'll be coming against God. And then you have this litany of of these things that are very odd in today's day and age from the Old Testament Leviticus um, laws and things like that. And some of it I've had interpreted as ways that God was trying to pursue the well-being and the wholeness of Israel. And some of it feels to me of like the, the people really trying to like not mess up those, the ultimate 10 commandments. And so they're going to put these walls like back a hundred yards, 200 yards. Yeah. And Susie and I had a similar experience. Susie and I were doing some time in a church and they had this little chat book. Um, and they were defining sin and not sin as actively choosing away from God, actively choosing things that you know were wrong. And this was the difference between mortal and venial sins. You were like, well, there's your normal everyday things that happen. And then there's like the truly intentional choosing against what is good. And they like, here's your chat book, like never do any of these things. And they had sort of guidelines on who you can vote for and what movies you can see and what you can listen to and things like that. And that's like just so human. And so naturally we throw words in there because they are the things that we fill our day with. Okay. We can't go any further without going to the basics. Otherwise, the cart's going to be so far ahead of the horse, the horse can't catch up. So does 
Jesus come to the table in his teaching with uh, a set of sort of theoretical work that helps him that he's drawing on to define human failure. Basically, yes. And there are these three Old Testament concepts that work together to describe the failure and the destructive actions and impulses of human beings. So these are amazing. They're sin, transgression, and iniquity. And they get variously translated because there's not that many Hebrew words. Uh, So this is interesting. Sin is this word, kata. It actually doesn't come in in Adam and Eve. That's kind of where you think it would come in. Uh, It comes in with the story of Cain and Abel. But what it is, is it relates to two things. And the first thing is the inclination of human beings uh, to distort reality, to self-deceive, to deceive themselves such that things that we are doing that are wrong, we can actually put a spin on. And it's our willing participation in our self-deception is one piece. There's an even more significant piece where sin is first mentioned, Cain, Abel, Cain's jealous. And actually, how crazy that he has a conversation with God before he actually murders his brother. And he's warned, uh, your kata is crouching at the door. And it's described, your sin, sin is crouching at the door as this wild, dangerous animal that gets interpreted as your inclination towards devouring destructive behavior is ready to devour you. And it seems like the, it smacks of James, right? Like the lion that's prowling around waiting for someone to devour. It does, and it, it also relates to Romans and uh, Paul's description of being at war with himself. So it's, it is moral failure, but beyond that, uh, it is this interconnected concept of self-deception, devouring, and then the way that we give in to the impulse to take, eat, destroy, save the self and all of the violence that that lets a human being do. If that were the only way to describe human failure, uh, it would be actually, uh, in many ways, sort of simpler to go, oh, so if you're devouring and serving the self, and if you're self-deceiving, that's wrong, so we can maybe begin to make a list of actions or ways that do that and end the conversation, but it's not. And I wish that our a Hebrew scholar friend, Scott and Mandy, were in the room to talk about just how many words there are for sin, which actually most of the time gets used to mean to miss when people say that the actual word sin is an archery term. There's a reason that an archery term is imported for this Old Testament word. And the archery term is to miss, you know, the archer fires and he sinned, meaning the arrow didn't hit the bullseye. Well, yeah, when sort of the men of Israel are practicing, they can throw a stone at the hair of a man's head and not sin, not miss, not kata. And so it has dimensions of missing, it has dimensions of deception, it has dimensions of devouring. 
The next one is a little easier. Transgression and iniquity are sort of both deprecated words. I feel like I remember them from classical church forums that I've been in, but I haven't heard a youth pastor recently say, like, talk about God forgiving our transgression. It's been, like, 15 years or so. Which is too bad, because, you know, transgress, to cross, trans, Latin preposition, has to do with treason. The Hebrew word is pesha, and it's broken trust. I owe this to Tim Mackey and the Bible Project guys for giving an incredible sort of explanation of if you, when it comes to Pesha, and if you steal from a stranger, it might be Kata. It might be the surrendering to this impulse to devour and operating out of the self-life. If you steal from your neighbor, it will be Pesha. In fact, it's own category because you ought to protect your neighbor's household. I don't know how many times, hopefully, you've had a conversation with your neighbor, because I have, where there's a kind of, all right, hey, like, keeping an eye on things for you, or you let your neighbor know, hey, I'm going to be out of town. Would you mind just grabbing the packages off my porch? There's a kind of trust built into sharing a resource that is a neighborhood. And if your neighbor were to come over and steal the packages off your porch, that would not just be, oh, man, you devoured, it would be, you broke my trust, you peshad with Mm me. Yeah. That one, by the way, becomes interesting when, in the New Testament, Jesus radically expands the definition of neighbor. And so the fact that it has to do with who deserves your trust and who you actually conceive of yourself as being in some kind of covenantal partnership with, the concept's going to grow. The last one of favorite by far, recently had a conversation with our boy Tim about it, and it's iniquity. No question, this is the oldest of the three terms in the sense that it's never that I can never remember talked about. Iniquity, what is that? In, so there's a Latin preposition that should, I'm telling you, they're important to know. There's like 20. Uh... The word is avon, and it gets variously interpreted as wickedness, crookedness, evil, maybe depending on how liberal the translator is, depravity. It actually means bent, bent, crooked. And what it uh, is built to mean in the Old Testament is uh, the consequence of an action, Retaliation is known as visiting someone's avon upon them, visiting their iniquity upon them. And you can think of a Western dialogue where two cowboys are about to gun each other down over a disagreement and they say, there's a price to be paid for the things that you do. Like, and you go, oh, that's avon. They're saying, we're making you live with destructive consequences of your actions. And so as someone that likes the love and logic parenting books, I go, oh my gosh, it's a phone. We could retitle this whole concept of phone of you build a world and God actually to a staggering degree protects human freedom such that he goes, yeah, you want to do X? You can walk into that consequence. You can build a world of 
destructive consequences and inhabit it, except there's a way out. In a really interesting way in Isaiah, and then in interesting ways that the Apostle Paul builds on, Jesus becomes the one who bears iniquity. If iniquity is meaningless, that is a meaningless phrase. That one I had heard somewhere. Jesus is the one who bears our iniquity and went, what is that? Like our guilt, our, what is it exactly? And it goes, oh, he bears the consequences of our destructive actions, the ways that our destructive actions have built a world that's harmful for us to occupy. He carries those consequences and like in his own body, in his death, and then actually like, like cancels them, cancels our avon. This is really interesting when we return to the sort of praxicological, the how do we work this out in action? There's doxa and praxi. I'm just shaking um, my head, letting him know that that's not an okay thing to land on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so forget praxi. Doxa, knowledge, praxi, action, more or less. And go, when we return to, yeah, but... What are we supposed to do? How do I make a decision about swearing? How do I make a decision about a tattoo? Go, well, maybe let's start with, how do you make decisions about actions that are conducive to the flourishing of people? And how do you make a decision about knowing an action is destructive to life in God's universe? And you can look at, uh, does it have to do with devouring and the propping up of the self? Is it a breaking of trust and is it a bentness does it create a consequence that you do not want to have to live with so straightforward then you guys <laughs> you can understand why this has been such an easy thing for the last 2000 years to just walk out maybe we should talk about one more <laughs> one more word that helps in the case of oh well I, actually no yes you can get there but first i'm already aware of the ways that I know on a subconscious level that some things are not appropriate in in different contexts. You know, the ways that you learn that as a kid, you're over at your grandparents' house, you're going to be on your best behavior. There's certain things you can do with your close guy friends that are not going to be offensive or breaking trust that would not be super appropriate first thing on Sunday morning. Um, and that's not to say that you don't get to be edifying and life-giving and certain things don't apply, but there's just, I, I've enjoyed cigars and, and dad and I will have a cigar. I wouldn't do the same thing when I'm watching the children at church. Like, hello, you guys, that's, let me just give you the most extreme example of there's, there's ways where like, I'm just aware that have how we need that nuance. We need that. It's not just black and white. I like this slap down thing of, well, that's always wrong. I just love that because off the top of my head, some other examples, um, that would, the watching kids one would be one of pishaw, of broken trust. Another one would be if you knew that a couple in your church was uh, sort of having like a conflict around the guy smoking, the wife currently had a problem with it, you would not say, oh, just come over and come over and secretly smoke at my house. Like just relax your shoulders a little bit. Right. That would be breaking trust with this marriage. And there are lots of ways to engage that conflict in a way that is loving, but sort of secretly providing a relief valve outside covenant 
That would not be one of those ways. Yeah. All right, you can take us into another word now if you want. Okay. We're on a journey, and we're on a road. And along this road, there are cul-de-sacs with things that are important to see and pick up and take with us, so that when we arrive at our destination, we're equipped to do the thing we need to do there, which is make good decisions about right action. So, a little cul-de-sac into the Ten Commandments... Fun! Uh, <laughs> uh, which, you know, are divided sort of down the middle of how do you love God and how do you love others? Given that Moses did come down with two tablets, it was very convenient. You know, you got five Given on the, one, five Exactly. On and how genius Jesus is, his ability to summarize this and love God and love others. Right. Uh, yeah, that's what. And then the Ten Commandments give this executive summary on what does it look like to do that? What are the actions that sustain the love of God and sustain the love of others? And they're going along and it's don't worship other gods in the form of sacrificing your kids and selling your daughters as prostitutes. Don't murder. Uh, don't commit adultery. And then this one that's sort of famously distorted, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. So don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't murder your own kids in the form of a sacrifice, and don't cuss. And as actually a lot of churches end up sort of interpreting, that says like, don't say, oh my God. And it goes, actually, oh my goodness. The concept is so much bigger and powerful and more devastating than the language you use. Because the word take... It makes sense if you say, I'm going on a trip and I am taking my laptop. Uh, But better yet, I am going on a work trip and I am taking my name badge in the company car such that I show up carrying the name of the company. There's a whole thing called name theology, which sort of digs into why is God so interested in his name? How is the name distinct from God? How is the name sometimes a character? Returning to good old Bible Project folks, they have a fantastic podcast on this, on the name of God. You can dig it up in their God series. But go, when you get to the one, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. It's do not bear or carry the name, which is a huge concept, uh, in a worthless way. And it just gestures towards this massive standard of really partnering with God and his mission for the universe instead of being an alleged partner with God and then just doing whatever. And so so maybe a televangelist is doing more breaking of that commandment than someone running around saying, oh my God. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if that's an accessible <laughs> example or a frightening example. I can't decide, but you're right. And well, someone that's trying to, that's bearing the signet ring and doing incredible harm. Yeah. When I was thinking about this, one of the ones that I actually thought of was, uh, who's the original, but the Rufus Wainwright singing the song that someone else wrote, Hallelujah, that you know comes up every once in a while in a movie. I detest that song because it's a wonderful example of taking something in vain where I go, how can you say such a, so many stupid things in a row in a beautiful way? That's just the kind of archetypical for me of evil is going, what you're doing is deeply powerful and persuasive in importing beauty in the form of music into 
words that if you were to sort of write them down and look at them, go, no, 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 no. You know, we're like, this is, love is not a victory march. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah echo. How many high schoolers feeling moody have sung along with that when I, back in the 90s when I, <laughs> or in the early aughts, and I go, no, that's the dumbest dumb thing I have <laughs> had the privilege of hearing a person sing. So, taking the name in vain. Uh, representing in like a worthless way. Which, I feel good about uh, this all wrapping together when we talk about if you, like me, have had encounters with religious folks who uh, feel that conduct is important, which is true, but need to sort of give biblical explanations of the invisible concept of human motive when it comes to language. Almost all the time, it's going to come out of James and it's going to come out of a one-liner in Ephesians. And there are some others, but for now, briefly touching on James, really interesting. James is all about the ruling of the tongue in a book that's about confessing, proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. And the other one, Paul, Ephesians 4, 29, and I can confirm that by finding it where actually it is in my notes. Yes. Uh, there's this famous instruction. Do not let any, and then here's the word, unwholesome, unworthy, crooked, wicked, something, talk, come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs. So the word, do not let any sapros, which actually comes up a lot in the Bible, this word sapros. Do not let any sapros speech come out of your mouth. Jesus uses it a lot. In Matthew 13, when he's on this hot streak of giving parables for the kingdom of God, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into a lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up. They sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. They threw away the sapros fish. And more significantly still, Matthew 7, a good tree cannot bear sapron, same word, fruit, and a tree, sapron, saffros, a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So not only does this have to do with what is good, wholesome, nourishing, it's an agricultural term for overripe or ruined or unproductive, literally fruit. But if you've been following the Anton's podcast long enough, you should hear the little uh, indexing chimes go off that tell you, you've talked about this before. This seems very connected when we're talking about fruit and production with the concept of goodness as it's developed in the Bible relating to the Hebrew word tov which means good, which means life with the seeds of life in it. Life that's going to produce life that's going to produce life. This built-inness of reproduction and multiplication into goodness. That, you can say the opposite, would simply be death that cuts off life. And so a good tree cannot bear fruit that's not itself good. And a tree that is bad is not going to produce tove fruit. And then in Paul's language, don't speak 
death and that cuts off the life that God is bringing would be how I'd summarize that. And yet returning to the tree, Jesus assumes that this comes out of who a person is. That, in fact, it's not about managing the action. It's about the heart, having your heart transformed so that the things you say are tov. And when you're having a conversation about language or action, in my opinion, the single most helpful concept or distinction is we can all think probably, and if you can't think of Dr. Dan Allender, uh, someone who is deeply transformed and continually being like made into a person who is Tove, who when he swears, nothing hits you. None of the vileness that words can carry comes out, but instead you go, wow. And then I can think of other people that I know where when they begin to use language, it almost doesn't matter what they say, but especially when they get to the charged language that, it, that are the profane words, that there is this kind of illness that comes out of it that I feel that goes, I don't want to be around this at all because what is coming out of your heart and your kata and your pesha and your avon is actually death bringing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What well, comes to mind, I've been in a couple different church services, um, where to even pull these examples further apart, um, Catholic mass, the father swore more than anyone I've heard swear who's giving the, the homily. And it, it wasn't bringing death. Like he, he actually, he swore several times on stage and I, I personally loved it. And what it was doing is it was like smelling salts, like calling people back as he's pointing people to Jesus and pulling people away from something and being like, that way is not good listen to me, we are going this direction. And it was appropriate and playful and sometimes jarring. And at the same time, I've been in services where people aren't using any of the naughty words and they're using all of this religious language and teachings that I think were bad interpretations that were leading people astray. They were causing people to live in ways that I think are not biblical, but they were giving this lesson from the stage. And that was more destructive than if they'd been just dropping F-bombs over and over again, because the words sounded like they should be right and they weren't. And it was this good fruit, bad fruit thing that continues to be the litmus test for most people, most actions, most choices, what is going to be the result and good being that Tove piece that it may not seem destructive right now, but if it doesn't bring life that brings life that brings life, it actually can't be good. It needs to have that unfolding. And so that test again of like, is it black and white? Mm, we, sort of. Is it, the yeah. test is very black yeah, and white. That's right. The, the words aren't necessarily black and white. And here's an interesting thing about the words themselves. The words were not made to do harm. They weren't f- sort of forged in the way weapons are made. Some uh, some were. Well, that's true. But if you look at history, most of them uh, were ways of assigning negative things, <laughs> negative characteristics to language that described a group of people that you were trying to do harm to. Right, which is kind of where I wanted to start. That's why I started way back there to go like, have you thought about why this word 
gets this reaction from you? Have you thought about why this thing is in this category of being vulgar or profane? Because sometimes it's just like an interesting history lesson to go, ah, that was the uh, that was a Germanic word, and the upper class were speaking the the remnants of Latin, and so if you were speaking the language of the people, that became vulgar, and that became something that you were lowbrow, and. Oh, that one is crazy too, where it's like phrenology. We'll come measure your head and tell you if you're a criminal. Which is insane, which is something that we've done historically very recently with human beings. And so you do get words that are always meant for death, always meant for the tearing of people groups. And there are, there's going to be words that are very specific for your context that you don't get to refer to a story or an action or someone's name because it is a weapon that you are bringing very intentionally, and it is far worse than any swear word on a list. <laughs> Sometimes it's the exceptions that prove the rule, but these are the, the examples that prove the rule where go, okay, but the emergence of profanity shows, is itself an illustration that what is in a person's heart is more important than what they say, because what was in someone's heart as they were using a word eventually made the word taboo, but, you know, let's say you went on a road ride and I went on a mountain bike ride and I came back and I felt like I had worked hard and I said, hey, hope you had a good ride, cyclist. Okay, cyclist is a noun, <laughs> but uh, that actually just describes like a neutral thing. And then there are a million ways to curse inside your relationships without using profanity, a million ways to fill your language with harm. And the heart is the core of the whole thing. And I felt like it would be helpful for our friends sort of in this podcast to give a couple other kind of case studies. These aren't rules. This is showing the method. But I have said, you know, in the college years and the better people say like, I swear, no, I swear, or I swear whenever I want. That's the one that's harmful. It's like the go, yeah, I swear whenever I want to swear. You go, oh, okay. At that point, there's the kata. There's my interest in my self-life above any other principle. Uh, and then one would be, let's say you're in a marriage where like particular language and, and like swearing makes your wife uncomfortable? <laughs> like, is it loving to grab onto the thing that is your freedom in Christ and go... To I don't the, like this example. This to, example, Susie's going to go, listen to that example. That is me. Stop swearing. To the pure, all things are pure. And go, uh, oh, I'm not going to say stop swearing. I'm going to say dive into the conversation unto love with your spouse. And like... This is a super fun thing to unpack, actually, when it goes, what triggers you? What do you see? And the most incredible thing in your core circle of people is to have an open heart to the people that you are, you know, that you don't want to peshaw with, you don't want to break trust with, and go, what do you see? And in my use of X thing, the cigar example is a great one, where Emily was like, hey, I know that because you meet up with guys... You have a lot of opportunities where you light up a cigar. I don't love, I really don't love the way you smell when you smell like cigar all the time. And I could go, well, I ain't stopping. There's nothing wrong with it. I go, yeah, until there's an invitation from my wife that I'm 
choosing towards the self-life instead of moving in towards and go, I totally get it, hon. Like, me loving you right now is actually, is what I'm going to build off of in choosing to restrict the number of times a month that I light up a cigar with the guys in our life. And the fun thing is that the opposite can also be true in sort of the case study world where people go, yeah, people at my church are offended when you swear, so don't swear and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, Being offended is not the same thing as being hurt. And Jesus did all kinds of things that were deliberately offensive and people were offended at him, his entire ministry. And so there are lots of times in the case, I'm really glad that it's a priest we get to mention here, it goes, where the loving thing is to use the shocking word out of the motive of love to actually like trigger the offense in a person in a way that reveals more of their heart to them. A couple more case studies that I thought might be helpful just in mentioning here. One, everybody mentions like, <laughs> yeah, but I just don't want to, I don't just don't want people swearing around kids. And I go, I feel like that's good. That's true. And uh, sort of elides, covers up, or passes over too quickly the whole category that is discipling, training, and instructing your kids and going, that's true. There are language, profanity increases the power of language, and there is power that you don't give a kid who doesn't have the ability yet to actually make good decisions above it. Like, you know, giving a four-year-old a pocket knife and going, but it's like, yeah, he should have one and go, I don't think he actually has sort of the neurological development. I remember that I was given my first pocket knife and I was young and dad was like, we sat at the table. He showed me how to use it. He gave me some rules for not opening it in a car. He's like, don't cut yourself with the blade. And I literally went right up to my room and wondered, what does a cut with a blade, how does it work? And I opened the knife and I put it on my thumb and I cut, I gave myself this huge thumb cut. I just went, oh, well then, dad was very wise to go, this is still your pocket knife, but I'm going to hold on to it for a while. And then I'm going to watch when the responsibility has emerged that you can actually have it in your sock drawer again. (laughs) When you're around people that swear, oh my gosh, it can be such an incredible way to have a conversation You and dad and I went hunting with another man who swore a lot in a violent way Mm -hmm. and we hated being around it and it opened the conversation and the drive of the heart being central and what comes out of a heart that is giving over to evil and deeply broken and crooked. What comes out is going to be terrible to be around. Right. But when you get to be around a fire, you know, with guys that love God as we were in the deserts of Utah and somebody's telling a story and then start swearing in the story. And yet the effect of it is the further experience of someone telling a loving story and yet they're using language. It makes the centrality of the heart sort of overwhelming. Right. So our inner stories and, and our lives and those ways that the enemy has wounded us are often very violent and often carry those words of power in those stories. And so on almost every occasion that I've heard of someone's story, someone's wounding, they've needed to be able to have the freedom to use these words and not downplay what the enemy is saying to them. Like you are worthless. That's 
That's a heavy statement. It is. But when you start dropping these expletives in front of worthless that that add it, that magnify it, well, all of a sudden, then you get to the tears. Then you get to the, oh, this is really what's being said. And there's just this part of me that goes, you cannot be afraid of wading into these waters or by being taken out by that because there might be a, a point where you need to hear that on someone else's behalf and to enter in there. And like with most categories, just plugging your ears in and going, we're not going into the shadow lands. Like here is where the sun hits Simba, but we do not go over there is living in a kind of fear that God somehow can't, is no longer God over there. Um, I was watching a video the other day about this uh, American crit cycling and it was awesome. It was really cool. And the guy who was doing the interviews gave the F-bomb, I think every third word for about 20 minutes. And at first I was like, that's really powerful. That's like salt. You're like, yeah, whoa, this is really cool. And then by about two minutes in, I was so done with the fact that he was a little boy who had a mallet and that was like, that was his thing. That's all that he knew to give things power. It wasn't destructive. It was, it was weak and it was empty and it was abrasive to me as he's trying to like use it as like salt over and over again. And essentially he wasn't handing me this meal of a story or this glimpse into his inner world. He was handing me a salt lick and it was like, that is disgusting. I don't want that. Like you can keep that. And I now I'm so disinterested in you as a person because you clearly have so many freaking issues. And so it's not like Terang's okay all the time. Terang's not okay all the time. But there's this posture of, I have noticed that in our, our guys group, I'm kind of the only one who swears and I'd only do it every once in a while, but it's often that like people have a hard time with language and with stories and with entering in and we get lulled into this kind of just autopilot and how much more so you get lulled into one during a Bible study. And so for me to be like, here's this quote and here's this thing and boom, here's this, this word to like, wake up, actually acknowledge what's going on under the surface. Um, and the fruit of it, back to the whole point, was to pull people out, to pull people towards Christ, was to pull people out of the autopilot, like the priest in that one mass I attended. And like when you hear someone's story or around the campfire in Moab, like there's something to it that is real, that is safe, and that is often a part of our stories and wounding that you need to be okay with hearing and not get taken out. And it's the thing that we get we start most boot camps with, and it doesn't always work, but it's that, like, be aware of ways that you might be straining gnats and swallowing camels, that you might be getting totally taken out by this word, but totally fine with religiosity or a slew of other things that are completely against Tove. Yeah, so good. The straining gnats and swallowing camels is a really sort of important postscript piece in a conversation about motive. And this is where Jesus goes to the Pharisees, this incredible example of you strain gnats in the forms of following the law and you swallow camels in the form of turning away from the need of the people to live in union with God. You, As he says, you know, you pile burdens on someone's back and do nothing to lift them. Sometimes it's not always clear where something is coming out of a person's heart. But I I can know for sure when I am carrying offense towards someone. There's just not very much nuance there, which when I am carrying offense, I know that I am in the wrong. Or when I'm standing in judgment over someone, 
I know that I'm in the wrong. And, and there's just this thing of returning to the fact of sin describing what destroys the soul. Kind of go, you know what? The offense that you might be carrying at something someone does is destroying, is destructive to your own soul. And that begins to come out of you in that, you know, a bad tree cannot produce tove fruit. It's a different Greek word, but the point holds. And then go straining gnats and swallowing camels. It is a miss to turn anything that Jesus says into a law of conduct when everything that Jesus says goes to a, makes a much deeper cut of righteousness into what is in a person's heart. The Old Testament narrative ends on this anticlimax of can anything be done for the lev, for the heart of people, which as we know, sort of from the entirety of Jeremiah is the core of the issue that God is not going to leave unaddressed. And so to take what Jesus does and goes, yeah, therefore I don't. He said, don't blank X. I go, okay. As an example, in the middle of a lifetime of examples of showing characteristic actions of the kingdom person whose heart is given over to God for its joy and whose life is therefore radically changing. 